want to read this morning something from a book by Peter Marshall. Peter Marshall was a Scottish-American pastor in Washington, D.C., Presbyterian pastor, and he was appointed to the United States Senate as a chaplain in 1946, and he was there for a couple of years. But in the book, Mr. Jones Meets the Master, which is a collection of some of his messages, he writes this uh, prose. Once upon a time, a certain town grew up at the foot of a mountain range. It was sheltered in the lee of the protecting heights so that the wind that shuddered at the doors and flung handfuls of sleet against the window panes was a wind whose fury was spent. High up in the hills, a strange and quiet forest dweller took it upon himself to be the keeper of the springs. He patrolled the hills, and wherever he found a spring, he cleaned its brown pool of silt and fallen leaves of mud and mold and took away from the spring all foreign matter, so that the water which bubbled up through the sand ran down clean and cold and pure. It leapt, sparkling over rocks and dropped joyously in crystal cascades until swollen by other streams, it became a river of life to the busy town. Mill wheels were whirled by its rush, gardens were refreshed by its waters, fountains threw it like diamonds into the air, swans sailed on its limpid surface, and children laughed as they played on its banks in the sunshine. But the city council was a group of hard-headed, hard-boiled businessmen. They scanned the civic budget and found in it the salary of the keeper of the springs. Said the keeper of the purse, Why should we pay this romantic ranger? We never see him. He's not necessary to our town's work life. If we build a reservoir just above the town, we can dispense with his services and save his salary. So therefore, the city council voted to dispense with the unnecessary cost of a keeper of the springs and to build a cement reservoir. So the keeper of the springs no longer visited the brown pools, but watched from the heights while they built the reservoir. And when it was finished, it soon filled up with water, to be sure. But the water did not seem to be the same. It did not seem to be as clean. And a green scum soon befouled its stagnant surface. There were constant troubles with the delicate machinery of the mills, for it was often clogged with slime, and the swans found another home above the town. At last, an epidemic raged, and the clammy yellow fingers of sickness reached into every home, in every street, in every lane. Folks, our our families, our schools, our communities, our nation, our world, and unfortunately the church itself, needs keepers of the springs. Spiritually disciplined men and women who are courageous enough to cleanse the fountains that have become so incredibly polluted. It will not be easy going to take a kind of fortitude that I'm not sure any one of us in this room actually has, but one that I hope will be inspired through God's compelling truth as we look at it. Where do we begin? Well, by taking the bull by the horns, and I think we need to target the spring which has taken the most abuse. 
the one which is the most polluted, the one which is in most need of purification, and begin there to restore its beauty. All you need to do to find this polluted spring is to turn on your smartphone. Peruse magazine counter as you check out at the grocery store. Concentrate on the lyrics to the latest song. Walk into the average high school or office. Tune your ears into the latest topic of conversation. And you can't help but to uncover this spring. Unchecked sensuality, specifically as it relates to sexual purity. It has become a raging, polluted river out of control, causing physical, emotional, and spiritual wreckage to everything in its path. And sadly, the church has gotten into its path. Now you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this topic. Because this issue of sexual purity has become the elephant in the room, so to speak. Or maybe not, maybe the opposite. Maybe the elephant, we've grown so accustomed to the elephant that we don't even care to talk about it anymore. We just blurt it all out. But we still ignore the problem. This elephant in the room, it's big, it's ugly, it's cumbersome, and it's always in the way. Always in a way. Can you go through a day in your life when you're not encountering this? Everyone feels its presence looming in our midst. Everyone sees it, but no one wants to talk about it again. But we must, and no matter how uncomfortable it may be, we need to. Why? Because God does. Sensuality is the biggest obstacle to godliness today, and it is wreaking Havoc in the church, says Kent Hughes. If we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we must begin with this discipline of purity because spiritual strength demands sexual purity. That truth applies to men and to women and to teens and to pastors and to leaders and to husbands and to wives. It applies to everyone. As David Seaman said, sexual temptation is no respecter of persons, no respecter of theological labels, no respecter of leadership positions, as we've seen. The importance of disciplining ourselves in this area cannot be emphatically stated enough. The Church of Jesus Christ will be spiritually impotent until it realizes it must become sexually pure. Now, the statistics speak for themselves. And quite frankly, no one wants to hear them anymore. I don't want to say them anymore. But the fallout among Christians from the pew to the pulpit continues to speak loudly and clearly. The undeniable conclusion is that the church of Jesus Christ has lost its grip on what it means to be different in the world. We are so well adjusted to the culture that we fit right into it without even thinking about it. But we need to be changed from the inside out, according to Romans chapter 12. Friends, we need to clean up the spring. And it's going to take some serious attention. As Vance Havner once said, it takes time to be holy. And it takes work. And it takes tears. And it takes sweat. And it takes travail and study and self-denial and diligent application. And all these things are now out of date. 
But are they really out of date? God's word is always relevant, isn't it? Never goes out of date. And in this area of purity, it is more relevant than ever. In the first century, followers of Christ faced the same exact kind of pressure that we face today in this area of maintaining purity. As Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, he didn't tiptoe around the elephant. He dealt with it head on. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're not already there. I want to read the first eight verses of this chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, this actually may be the most clearly articulated call to sexual purity in the Bible. As we survey our laid-back view of this topic, the, these words should hit us like a wave of cold water, jolting us out of our complacency. These words of Paul's are serious words. Ignoring them are not going to make them disappear. They're not going to go away. They are God's words to us. To reject them is to reject him. My advice to you today and to myself is that we be extremely careful what we do with what we hear. Extremely careful. If you and I are going to clean up the spring, if we're going to cultivate and maintain sexual purity in our hearts and in this church, we must realize first that the call to sexual purity is a command of God's word. It's a command of God's word. First two verses right here. We request finally, brethren, and exhort you in the Lord that you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. If you want a little bit of perspective, just think back over the last three weeks to what, we, what I preached on and what we saw happen to Saul when he failed to listen seriously enough to God's command to him. Remember all that we unpacked and all that transpired in Saul's life and where he ended up? Same deal. We have commands here by the authority, Paul says, of the Lord Jesus. So it rests on divine authority, these words that we're looking at. We are in a constant battle with what society says and society feels is right and what God said is right. That contrast goes on. 
The gap between those two voices, I got to say, used to be a lot smaller. However, in a society that no longer accepts the notion that truth exists in an absolute form and spurns any effort to limit the free expression of sensual desires, that gap has now become a grand canyon. Amen? And Christians have begun to slip slowly into that canyon. Listen, friends, our capacity for rationalization is off the map when it comes to this kind of stuff. Just look what happened to Saul. How often have you heard or bought into lies like this? Oh, the Bible standards are outdated. Oh, everyone's doing it. Why should I stifle something that's natural? It's who I am. God made me this way. It's my body. Ah, my marriage was never really God's will in the first place. Look, I'm not hurting anybody else, but you are. I can handle it. It's not going to get too far. This isn't lust, by the way. I'm just admiring God's beautiful creation. (laughs) Now, you're laughing, and I know why you're laughing, because you've heard that said before. Maybe you said it or tried to convince yourself of it. These movies don't affect my relationship with my wife. In fact, they even enhance it. Statistics prove otherwise. But we're in love. And we're going to get married in a month anyway. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a pastor. Paul didn't give us his opinion on on the subject here. Not opinion. He gave us God-breathed words. He said, these are commandments of the Lord by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. The commands for sexual purity in this text cannot be looked at as outdated cultural commands, but must be viewed as timeless, relevant truth straight from the mouth of God. Even the Thessalonians knew that. Turn back to chapter 2 and look at verse 13. Paul says to them, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. If it's truly the word of God, if you accept it as the word of God, if you believe it as the word of God, it's going to do some work in you. That's what Paul says. But when it comes to sensuality, we want to forget that God even addresses this topic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed that when we are controlled by lust, you know what happens? We forget all about God. At this moment, he says, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Don't you think that's what our enemy wants? Men, where does God fit in when you're looking at Sports Illustrated Edition, Swimsuit Edition? Ladies, where, is your, where in your thought life is God when you're watching The Bachelor? Paul says that the command for sexual purity not only rests on divine authority, but also it requires consistent attention. It says here in verse 2 that... He asks them to excel still more. 
Go over the top with it, Paul says. Don't be fooled. This sin requires more and more of our disciplined attention, especially in this country. No one can ever say, mind you, oh, I've already dealt with that one. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I've dealt with that one. I remember years ago, one of our deacons who was in his 70s at the time said to me, Russ, you know, I may be old, but I'm still a man and I'm not dead yet. (laughs) See, keeping God and his, his truth right in front of us is the only way to begin to deal with this discipline of purity. The first step is realizing that sexual purity is a command of God's word. Secondly, sexual purity is a condition of God's will. It's a command of God's word, and it's a condition of God's will. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You can't get much more clearer than that, can you? I hear people all the time ask, how can I know God's will? What kind of process do I need to follow in order to know God's will for my life? Well, in some cases, it's like open your stinking eyes. Read the black and white. For this is the will of God. Uh, What part of that don't you understand? We need to stop ignoring this verse. Especially when it's spelled out for us like this. At least one aspect of God's will is that we remain morally pure, holy, set apart from the norm. That's what sanctification means. We cannot live like the rest of the world Because we're Christ's. We're not like the rest of the world if we're believers in Christ. Accept it. Keeping ourselves clean in the midst of a mud pit is agonizing work, isn't it? It doesn't happen overnight, and it takes more than just talking about it. D.L. Moody once said, quote, it's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. It's also a lot more difficult, isn't it? Paul elaborates in detail just what he means by sanctification in this context of sexual purity. He outlines three major areas that we must be concerned with, that we abstain from sexual immorality, that we know how to control our bodies, and that we realize that overstepping God's given limits on sensuality affects everyone around us. That's all spelled out right here in this text. That's what the sanctification he's referring to means. So in other words, it means that as Christians, maintaining sexual purity requires personal abstinence. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's not an option. It's not just the topic of the latest Christian book. The word abstain literally means to hold away from. God's plan is to make you holy, and that means making a clean cut with sexual immorality. Abstinence from anything that gratifies us is not the normal practice of our world, is it? It's not the normal practice of the church. For that matter... Listen to this quote from a book on this topic. In so many areas, we're often sitting together on the middle ground of excellence, a good distance from God. When challenged by his higher standards, we're comforted that we don't look too different from those around us. 
Trouble is, we don't look much different from non-Christians either. The author says, our adolescent Christians are often indistinguishable from their non-Christian peers, sharing the same activities, music, jokes, attitudes about premarital sex. Kristen, a teenager, told us this, quote, our youth group is filled with kids faking their Christian walk. They're actually taking drugs, drinking, partying, and having sex. If you want to walk purely, it's easier to hang around with the non-Christians at school than to hang around with the Christians at church. This is a teenager that's saying this. I say that because school friends know where I stand, and they say, that's cool, I can accept that. The Christian kids, she says, mock me, laughing and asking, why be so straight, get a life. They pressure my values at every turn. That's sick. That's sad. It shouldn't be that way. The author goes on and says, sadly, the adults are no different from the Christian teens. Linda, a single career woman, says her adult singles group at church has players, men and women, who stalk their prey to satisfy their own needs. And don't we realize what our slack standards are costing us in our witness to the world? In Revival Praying, author Leonard Ravenhill writes these words. He says, this present day, by the way, this is a preacher from a long time ago, a revivalist. He says, this present day is like an arena whose terraces are filled with militant, godless, and brilliant and belligerent skeptics, plus the blank-faced heathen millions all looking into the empty ring to see what the church of the living God can do. They're watching us, in other words. How I burn at this point, he says, what are we Christians doing? To use a very tattered phrase, are we just playing church? Listen, friends, if you are single, there is no way, no way to biblically justify a sexual relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's sin. It's sin. There's no way to rationalize an extramarital affair. It's adultery. That's what the Bible says. And by the way, when Paul used the phrase sexual immorality here, when he said the will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality, he used a very specific Greek word. The word is porneia. Sound like anything you know? It's where we get the word porn from. And it refers to any and all illicit sexual behavior, including things like lust, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pedophilia, promiscuity, prostitution, incest, bestiality, or any other sexual sin that the Bible forbids. That word porneia is a general umbrella term to cover it all. Paul says abstain from it. And we also need to remember that these sins are not necessarily limited to actions. Jesus said they can be affairs of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, he says, Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So if you think that indulging in videos and computer images is a harmless activity, well, you're dead wrong. Paul said we need to make a clean cut abstain from it. He wasn't the only one that said it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, what does he mean by that? 
He means you're not part of this world. You're walking in this world as foreigners, spiritually speaking. So as a foreigner to this world system, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 in the ESV says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul says, Now flee from youthful lusts, Timothy, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. What's he saying? He's saying temptation is avoided when we choose to flee what hinders us, follow what helps us, and fellowship with the people who will hold us to the truth. That's the threefold way that we avoid temptation in this area. Genesis chapter 39 is a great little example of that. I'm not going to unpack it in detail, but just want to refer to it. It's a It's the way Joseph handled it, right? In uh, Genesis 39, verse 7, it came about after these events that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, come to bed with me, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There's no greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. Now, here's Joseph. Picture it now. He's a young man. He's all alone in the house with this woman who wants him. If you read the context, she was after him daily. Nobody there to to spy on him. Nobody there to give him up. Nobody there to see what he's doing. He could have gotten away with it with the influence that he had. But what does he say? How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Then she called to the men of her household and said, see, he has brought this Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. What did Joseph do? He fleed immorality. The rest of the world has other ideas. To the unbelieving world, sexual awareness is the answer, not personal abstinence. We, we all know the stats on that. Teen pregnancy, STDs, increased abortions, ever-increasing multi-million dollar porn industry, sex trafficking, you name it. It's all the result of it, people not fleeing it. The answer to the problem is not sexual awareness. The answer to the problem is personal abstinence. It's self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Ivan talked about the fruit of the Spirit. He was talking about a move of God and the fruit of the Spirit. I'll tell you where we need a move of God and the fruit of the Spirit. It's in this area of self-control. Self-control. Sexual purity requires personal application, and it means 
this area of self-control. In one sense, the Bible does advocate awareness in order to stem the tide of sexual impurity. Verse 4 says that we need to know. It says, each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. We need to know how to keep our bodies under control. Do you know how to do that? That's a very, very deep well and complicated issue and beyond the scope of this message. But I'll tell you, we're compelled to learn There are plenty of resources available that I can point you to. Some of the men in this church have been through a series called the Conquer Series. Also helpful for women to get an idea of what's going on in men's minds. Goes into the psychology and the neuroscience behind sexual addiction and how our brains actually respond to that. And they're literally altered. Our brains are literally altered as we indulge ourselves with more and more sexually explicit material. And all of this corroborates the exhortations given throughout the scriptures to distance ourselves from that which is harmful and sinful in the eyes of a God who loves us beyond all comprehension. But let me just give you two simple, practical, biblical ways to start. You've got to develop a strategy of, number one, training your eyes, and number two, cultivating the offensive tactic of guarding your heart by taking up your sword and shield. Train your eyes, guard your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 deals with this quite clearly, actually. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, do not let them depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their body. Well, there you go, right there. Benefits of paying attention to the word. Verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the left nor to the right. Turn your foot from evil. There's train your eyes. Guard your heart. Train your eyes. Train your eyes to look away from the things that trip you up. Sexual scenes in movies, commercials, internet ads, attractive men and women, anything that stimulates a desire for sexual gratification from anyone or anything other than your spouse, you need to be ruthless with it. We all do. Because the tendency of our eyes is to be drawn toward the sexual. Part of our nature. God created us with that nature. It's also to be drawn toward the beautiful. But we confuse the beautiful with the sexual. And there's very Big difference between beauty and sexy. Huge difference. I go into this in a series that I preached on modesty, and it's a, it's, it's a pretty clear distinction. But it's a habit for us. Learn a new habit, the scripture says. You can do that. Retrain your eyes. Deflect them. In deflecting the eyes, you begin to starve the fuel, which inflames your impure thoughts. Job chapter 31, verse 1 says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And that goes for women too. But you know what? We don't do that. Let's face it. We we don't do that. We indulge our eyes. Ah, I can handle this. You know what it takes? It takes discipline. 
It takes spiritual discipline and it costs us something. Self-gratification. That's what it costs. And you're likely thinking, well, that's pretty lame, Pastor Russ. I mean, how simple-minded can you be to think that a stupid practice like deflecting the eyes can solve the porn problems of the world? It's a little more complicated than that, don't you think? No kidding. I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. But let me ask you a question if you're thinking that. Why do you think that Jesus used such intense hyperbole concerning the teaching on this stuff? Because the sin really isn't in our eyes, is it? It's in our heart. Matthew chapter 5 again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now listen to what he says. See if you will say that Jesus is simple-minded. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me say this. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not saying gouge out your eyes. He's saying be ruthless with this thing. I got to say this. If you're not ready to change the focus of your eyeballs, you're never going to be ready to let Jesus change the focus of your heart. There's no way. We're working from the lesser to the greater here. You got to want to change it all. It costs everything to live for Christ, doesn't it? Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you don't deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is a daily cross that we need to crucify this sin to. This is a daily practice that we need to deny ourselves. Paul said, don't act like the rest of the unbelieving world who are led by their passions and lusts. You need to exhibit some self-control. But self-control, by the way, and I need to say this, is not just saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'll guarantee that's not going to work. In fact, the problem's going to likely get worse. To approach the issue of sexual purity with that attitude is as absurd as the enthusiastic man who had just received his plumber's license and was taken to see Niagara Falls. And after studying it for a minute, he confidently said, I think I can fix that. You can't fix this problem. It's like a mighty rushing waterfall that will take you under and drown you. Not on your own, you can't fix it. Your ability to have self-control comes from one place alone, submitting yourself to the Spirit's control. That's how we take up the sword and the shield. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Verse 19. Notice the bookends in this section of Scripture from verse 19 to verse 
23. I'm not going to read the whole passage, just 19 and 23. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, what's he start off with? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Why would he start off with that if it wasn't such a pervasive sin? But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22 says, is, and what does he end with? Self-control. Self-control. It's the first problem that he deals with, but it's the last word on the subject. Self-control. Paul says we're supposed to know how to treat our bodies as holy, set apart for God. We're to treat the body with honor, something of value and real worth. It is a vessel of dignity, and God has placed a high, high honor on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you're not your own. For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Therefore, Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, for it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. So here's your shield a protective arsenal of scriptures that you can reflect on and draw strength from even when you're not in the heat of the battle. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ and it's going to be very difficult, you know, if you're doing that in, in, in the down times all the time, then it's going to be very difficult to get it deflected off onto something else. I'm not saying that it's never going to happen, but you're going to be quick to be able to deal with it when you have your sword and your shield, Amen. Here's the bottom line. Our bodies are for the glory of God. We weren't created for ourselves, were we? We were created for God's glory. And since we've become followers of Christ, we're not supposed to live strictly for ourselves, being driven by the heat of our passion, but for him. Sexual purity is a condition of God's will. It requires personal abstinence, personal application, and it demands personal accountability. In verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Listen, there may be a great many reasons why we should avoid all forms of sexual immorality, but verse 6 gives two very specific ones. Number one, it always involves others, thereby producing multiple victims. And number two, it always insults God, thereby inviting his consequences. Paul indicates that by sexual impurity, we transgress. That's what he says. We overstep the bounds. Literally, we cross the line. That's what it means there, that word transgress in verse 6. It means we crossed the line. Ultimately, the sin is against God, but the sin always affects the people around us, doesn't it? It defrauds others. Always. The damage that this sin has done is incomprehensible. Sexual impurity has and continues to leave a trail of spiritual wreckage and human litter everywhere it has gone. Families have been destroyed. Marriages, churches, 
Children have been scarred. Consciences have been seared. All this stuff is coming out now in the media and you see it left and right. Is there a person on the face of the earth that hasn't been touched by this sin? Sexual sin always takes down others, not just the perpetrator. How many people have been affected by a pastor's indiscretion, let's say? Entire churches. How many brides have regretted not being pure on their wedding night? How many husbands and wives have ruined the precious intimacy of their marital relationship by this sin? How many families have been destroyed by the lure of one single moment's pleasure? You know what? We're a far cry from the wisdom of Job who made a covenant with his eyes. Could Job have survived life in the 21st century? Maybe he soberly understood what we candidly dismiss, that sexual sin inflames God's anger and invites the consequences of God's judgment. That's the thing that we don't think about. Solomon put it well in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, he says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. You read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and see what they deal with. You know, I pointed out Proverbs 4, which talks about that twofold strategy of guarding your, eye, guarding your heart and training your eyes. What's well, interesting to me that at the end of that chapter there in chapter 4, it leads into the first thing that chapter 5 deals with, which is lust. And then chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 all deal with this sin. I guarantee you if you read those chapters, you'll have a better perspective on what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4. God does not look lightly on our sin and nothing gets by him. Nothing at all gets by him. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 21, Solomon says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. You see, Paul's trying to keep us from going astray. Why? Because he says the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Verse 6. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? There are always consequences to this sin. And when you take something that God considers sacred, considers as precious, and turn it into sport and entertainment, there are consequences. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We must work at this discipline of purity. It's a must. The church of Jesus Christ can have no power apart from purity. It's a command of God's word. It's a condition of God's will. And as such, it's a clarification of God's call. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. There's that word sanctification again. So remember first what your purpose is. 
Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. So how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And in another place, he says, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Remember your purpose to glorify God in your body. Secondly, remember where your power is. Galatians 5.16, we just talked about it. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. This struggle with purity begins in the mind. Satan will do everything in his power to gain control of your thoughts by inflaming your passions through your mind. But we don't have to aid him in this. We've got to start resisting him. Draw near to God, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and guess what? He'll flee from you. And you won't have to flee from immorality because the devil will be fleeing from you. We got to start resisting him. So how do we do that? Practically speaking, don't be ignorant. Resist the temptation. Don't walk down the street of temptation if you know what it is. We're all going to be tempted, but temptation is not the sin. Yeah, it's impossible to maintain a pure mind if you're addicted to your screen. It ain't going to happen. Even if you're not on those sites, those sites are going to be finding you. Ads or whatever. In a week's time, you will witness more sexual perversions on your smartphone than your grandparents could read about in their entire lives. One week. So pray and memorize scripture and fill your mind with what, is, what God says will transform your soul. Spend time with people you love. Be selective about what you read and watch. Don't take second looks. Don't be ignorant, so don't be blind is the next thing. Rehearse the consequences. When a, one Christian leader who had fallen into immorality was asked what could have been done to prevent it, he said, you know what? If I really had known what the outcome of all this would have been, I seriously, honestly believe I never would have done it. But we have all these warnings in Scripture. Thirdly, don't be independent. Remain accountable. Find a couple of solid Christian friends you can trust and check in on by asking pointed questions. Enlist their support. Fourth, don't be arrogant. Recognize your weakness because we all are prone to this sin. Don't ever say it can't happen to you. It can. You know why? Because Satan knows you better than you know you and he knows your weak spots. He knows the warning signs. You need to know the warning signs. And if you mess up, fifthly, don't be despondent because Christ's forgiveness is available. Christ's forgiveness is available for any sin. Sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin, but you must admit that it is, in fact, sin. You can't, you can't just not admit that it's sin and wash it away. So admit that it's sin, decide to repent, ask for his cleansing. The only other alternative is to ignore what God says about it, and that's very dangerous. And you know why? Verse 8 says why, as we wrap it up. Because ignoring this idea of sexual purity is contempt for God's grace. So he who rejects this, Paul says, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
See, to reject God's teaching on purity is to reject God himself who gives us his spirit in order to live godly lives. In the words of an insightful man, he said, we do not have a healthy hatred of sin today because we have no proper sense of the holiness of God. The love of God has been preached, but not his law. Men are not conscious of their need because they do not regard sin as the awful thing that cost God his son and the son his life. We don't think about that when we're indulging ourselves, do we? That this very thing cost Jesus his life. He said they do not desire the physician because they do not think they're sick. In the realm of sexual impurity, the epidemic rages, the clammy yellow fingers of sickness has reached into every home, every church, every heart, every soul. As Jeremiah said almost 2,600 years ago, he said, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Jeremiah 23, 15. And it's true. These springs need to be cleaned. And it must start right here within the church, right here within our hearts. And it must begin with me and you. Peter Marshall finishes off his prose on keepers of the springs this way. He said, the city council met again. Sorrowfully, it faced the city's plight. And frankly, it acknowledged the mistake of the dismissal of the keeper of the springs. And they sought him out in his hermit hut high in the hills and begged him to return to his former joyous labor. Gladly he agreed and began once more to make his rounds. And it was not long until the pure water came lilting down under the tunnels of ferns and mosses and to sparkle in the cleansed reservoir. Mill wheels turned again as of old. Stenches disappeared. Sickness waned and convalescent children playing in the sun laughed again because the swans had all come back. Folks, there has never been a time when there was a greater need for keepers of the springs. But you know what? To be a keeper of the spring, we must be a keeper of the faith. There's no time like the present to ask Jesus to come into your life and be the power that fuels your commitment to purity right now. Let your heart be washed clean and refreshed anew by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why you had me preach this message this day for this time, other than I know that there's many of us, all of us need to hear it, but there may be one or two specific people, Lord God, that you're speaking very clearly to right now, that they need to get on their knees of their hearts and invite Jesus into their life as Lord and Savior that the springs of their heart and soul may be cleansed. Father, I pray if those people are here right now that they would take the time to bow their heads, bow their hearts in humble sincerity and say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, I've really been a mess with this and I need the washing of the water of the word I heard today, but I also need the washing and regenerating power of your Holy Spirit. So come into my life I believe that you died on the cross to forgive me for my sins and I trust you to be my Lord. The Father, for the rest of us that we know you, I pray, Lord God, that if we're convicted by these words that we read this morning in your scripture, 
that we would repent of it, confess it, admit it, and walk away. And allow the Holy Spirit to guide our steps that we might be refreshed again to glorify you. I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.